Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, our guest is New York Times bestselling author Douglas Preston, class of 78. Welcome, Doug. Well, good to have you with us here in cyberspace. Well, it's uh, good to be good to be talking to some uh, Pomona people um, from isolation. <laughs> so, how are you doing in these sort of strange, perilous times? Well, you know, actually, I'm not doing too badly. The uh, wonderful thing about being a writer is that I work alone anyway, and uh, writers kind of like to be alone. If you don't like to be alone, you're not going to be a good writer, I think. So I, yeah. I'm just continuing with my life as usual, and I'm here in my a little office in Santa Fe, New Mexico, with my T-Rex skull behind me. Uh, you can't see it, but uh, surrounded by books, and no one comes into the office but me, so I'm, <laughs> I'm doing all right. Following all public health guidelines. <laughs> I am, I am. At least <laughs> So, um, as they say, let's begin at the beginning. Um, can you tell us a bit, uh, how were you as a child? Um, we, we hear that you and your, as your brother Richard says, um, the two of you pretty much terrorized your neighborhood. Is that true? Well, that's right. You know, my brother is Richard Preston, who was class of 76 at Pomona. And uh, we were oh, the terrors of the neighborhood. I hate to, you know, we grew up in this extremely dull boring suburb of Wellesley, Massachusetts. My mother taught at Wellesley College. And uh, we, were, we grew up right next to the campus. And because we were faculty brats, we could run around on the campus and the campus police could kick us off the campus, but they couldn't really do anything about us because we were <laughs> faculty kids. So we'd come on and we'd terrorize the place. And, oh, I don't know, we were, we were really unpopular uh, on the campus of Wellesley College. And when we got older, when we were like 16, 15 or 16, we used to sneak into the Wellesley College mixers and try to tell everyone that we were uh, a freshman at Harvard studying nuclear physics. Because we were immediately expelled. <laughs> we were never successful at that gambit. But anyway, it was, uh, we, yeah. So we had a pretty wild childhood. Not for a lack of effort, though. Good tries. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, my my brother, uh, Richard, you know, he wrote the, the Hot Zone and a number of other books about uh, pandemics and epidemics and disease and so forth. And I mean, the Hot Zone is one of the grossest, most disgusting books I've ever read. And it's so funny because when we were at the dinner table, uh, when we were little kids, we used to tell disgusting stories. And my mother would get so upset, she'd say, one more story like that, and you're going to go and sit on the stairs. And so, of course, that was a challenge, and we would tell a disgusting story about boogers or something like that, and we'd have to go sit on the stairs. And uh, my brother turned that into an incredibly lucrative career <laughs> of disgusting stories. And I've even done the same myself in my book, The Lost City of the Monkey God. That's pretty disgusting at the end as well. <laughs> So um, how did you end up following Richard to uh, Pomona? Oh, well, you know, how, how can I explain this? Um, well, 
my brother applied to college in 19, what, 72, I guess, or 71. Mm-hmm. And um, he, in high school, he styled himself an anarchist. And uh, so in his first round of college esca- essays, uh, the first line of his college essays became famous in our family. The first line was, frankly, I am an anarchist. And then he proceeded to talk about burning down the banks and, you know, this and that. I mean, and this was at the time when, you know, Isla Vista, they, the students really were burning the banks. So he was absolutely rejected decisively by every college he applied to. I mean, even though he was a brilliant student, they just did not want an anarchist on campus. So, uh, so he got a talking to from everyone. And so the next round of applications, he applied to Pomona and uh, wrote a nice essay. I don't know what he wrote, but it wasn't, didn't begin, I'm an anarchist. So he got it Pomona. And then uh, he told me, this is a great school. You should come too. So I applied and got in as well. Um, and I don't remember what my essay was about, but I was not an anarchist. So. <laughs> That's why I got you in probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I wrote some really dull essay about, you know, whatever, who knows <laughs> Did you already know um, that you wanted to become a writer or that you wanted to write when no, you came I, to Pomona? I didn't. I had no. I didn't really have any idea what I wanted to do. Actually, I wanted to be a a physicist or a biologist. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. And I started off as a biology major, and then I thought of majoring in physics and and then math, and um, and then I realized that I wasn't smart enough to be a physics major or a biology major. I just wasn't smart enough. I mean, the students in the class around me, if I worked like crazy, I could get eke out a B plus or an A minus. I realized that's not a, enough. So I decided at, after taking all these science classes, I decided I'd become uh, a science journalist. And so then I took a bunch of English classes and really enjoyed English and graduated as an English major, having, but having taken all these science classes. And uh, that's where my writing career began. I then, my first job out of Pomona was uh, working for the American Museum of Natural History in New York, uh, where I edited their little throwaway newspaper and wrote little articles about the museum and so forth. And, and that's where my science journalism career started. So how did you uh, uh, get that job at the museum, and, and, and what impact did it have on you down the line? Oh, it was a huge, it had a huge impact. My whole life was changed by that job. I worked for the museum for about eight or, eight or nine years, eight years. Um, well, you know, I, it was a very lowly job I applied for as a membership assistant in the membership office. And the only reason they hired me, and this is the truth, had nothing to do with my grades, my awards, or anything else. It had to do with the fact that I was editor of the Student Life, which was an eight-page newspaper uh, printed weekly in a certain format. And the membership office had an eight-page newspaper printed (laughs) weekly in the same format. And nobody (laughs) in the office knew how to uh, produce it. So they hired me so I could produce this newspaper because they were going nuts trying to, you know, figure out how to produce it, print it, you know, was driving them nuts. And I thought, oh, my God, here's somebody who can who can help us print the damn newspaper. 
Um, so nobody in my entire life has ever asked me for my transcript or my grades at Pomona, even though I did very well. Um, I didn't do as well as my brother who graduated summa cum laude, but, but I did okay. But it was the newspaper background that, that got me the job. And the funny thing was I had to take a typing test in order to get the job, and I failed the typing test. <laughs> so the personnel office told the membership office that they couldn't hire me. It was against the rules. And the membership office had a fit because they couldn't find anyone else who could print the damn newspaper. So they had a huge argument with the personnel office, and I was hired, thank God. My starting salary was $9,000 a year, and I, I never felt richer than I did then. When I started. $200 a week paychecks or whatever it was. Um, but it was a long way in New York City, I'm sure, in those days. Well, it was. You know, it, there was a huge, you know, I grew up in Boston, outside of Boston. And going to Pomona, Southern California, it was a, a culture shock beyond all belief. I mean, I was completely, I felt like I'd moved to Ouagadougou. I mean, I had no idea what was going on. Southern California was so different and wonderful in many ways and horrifying in other ways. And then I moved to New York, which is another terrific cultural shock because New York and Boston are totally different cities. Um, but anyway, it was it made my life interesting. So how did the uh, those eight or nine years at the museum uh, change your life? Well, I it was, you know, I started off writing these little throwaway articles for the newsletter. And then the editor of Natural History Magazine came to me and asked me if I would I write a column in the magazine about the museum. And I thought, yes, of course, I'll do that. So I started writing this column. And some of the columns had, were devoted to sort of events going on at the museum. But whenever there wasn't an event going on, I got to write about whatever I felt like writing about. And I discovered that that museum was full of the most incredible stories that you can imagine. I mean, the story of the Copper Man, the amazing mummy found in Chile. Uh, the story of the Star of India, the story of the discovery of the of T-Rex, the, the first discovery, the discovery of dinosaur eggs in Outer Mongolia, expeditions all over the world in the 19th century. I mean, there was this incredible richness of stuff to write about. And because I was writing this column, I had access to all these things. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example. One day I came into my office, and my office... Dank. The stench was awful. It was like a mixture of mothballs and, and old beef jerky. <laughs> I couldn't work. I came out. I was suffocating. And someone said to me, oh, you know, right next to your office is the museum's mummy storage room. And <laughs> once a year, they unseal those cases and change the paradichlorobenzene crystals, which keep the mummies you know, fresh. Uh, and that's what happens. It smell comes out. It, so I thought, oh, my God, I've got to see this man. And so I, I managed to talk my way into it. The anthropology department did not want to show it to me because they had all these famous mummies that have been taken off display. They're not politically correct to show anymore, but they mm -hmm. were of great scientific value. And so they couldn't, you know, throw them out or, or they and they had not yet at NAGPRA not come into effect. So they were not yet required to send these, these human remains back to the tribes that they'd stolen them from. 
So I got to go into this room and it was incredible. Thousands of mummies, not from Egypt, but from the New World, many from South America. And in the middle of the room was this bright turquoise mummy, perfectly preserved. You could see his fingerprints. He was dripping. Wow. And his long, beautiful braided hair. And he had around his waist a, a bag full of stone tools. And he was known as the Copper Man. And he had been found in the 19th century in a copper mine in Chile. And he was a prehistoric miner from about five or 6,000 years ago. who had been trapped in this little crawl space mining copper, just chiseling it out with his stone tools. He hadn't been crushed, but what had happened was the ceiling had shifted and pinned him, and he'd been trapped there, and he died. And then, because it was in the Atacama Desert of Chile, he'd been preserved perfectly by the copper salts. And, in fact, he'd been turned bright turquoise uh, with mm. copper oxide. And the story of this mummy was unbelievable. You know, the, there was a huge lawsuit between the miner who rented the mine and the owner of the mine, the owner of the mine said, no, I only rented you the ore in the mine. You can't have the people you find in it. So the miner broke off the toe of the mummy and had it assayed and found it was 2% copper and said, no, this, this, this mummy is copper ore. And lawsuits and everything else. And finally, J.P. Morgan heard about this mummy. He paid $20,000 for it in the 19th century. They put it on display at the at the great Chicago exhibition, you know, of 1893. And it was so, the sensation that this mummy caused was so tremendous that the, the pavilion he was in was so filled with people that there was a, a stampede and the case was broken and people were falling on top of it and pushing each other at the side to try to look at the mummy and, you know, and on and on and on. and then so, so that was just one of the stories I told. And it turned out that there was a, a young man uh, reading my column. And one day he called me up and he identified himself as a, an editor at St. Martin's Press. And he wondered if I would care to have lunch with him at the Russian Tea Room to discuss writing a book about the museum. So I immediately rushed out to Goodwill and got a jacket so I could get to the Russian Tea Room. <laughs> And he showed up there, uh, and I was looking for this gray-haired editor, this distinguished fellow, but there was a kid younger than I was, like, waving at me from the table in the back, <laughs> the worst table in the house. And so I went back there, and it turned out that he was the, the editor from St. Martin's Press, a brilliant, rising young editor named Lincoln Child. And so he became the editor for my first book, a nonfiction book, called Dinosaurs in the Attic, which was the history of the museum about how they collected all this stuff, crazy stories, like the one I just told you about the Copper Man. And so one day, Lincoln said to me, Doug, I've done you the biggest favor that anyone has ever done you in your life. I published your first book. And now I want you to do me a favor. I want you to give me a tour of all these weird places in the museum that nobody sees. And I said, Lincoln, I can't do that. I'm just a lowly employee. I mean, these are, you know, high security places. And he said, Doug, you have to do it. I'm telling you, I, you know, I've done you this favor. Now you, so I thought, okay, 
if we wait in my office until about 11 o'clock at night, we can go around the museum. And I did have a key, a skeleton key, believe it or not. You can believe how terrible the security was in the museum. It opened up about a third of the doors in the museum. You know, two thirds wow. wouldn't open. You could never know. You'd stick this key in the door and it would either open it or not open it. So it gave Lincoln this tour. And we ended up in the Hall of Late Dinosaurs at two o'clock in the morning. All the lights were off. Only the neon, the, the fluorescent lights in the ceiling were on, the emergency lights. Totally crazy, scary scene. And Lincoln turned to me and he said, Doug, this is the scariest goddamn building in the whole world. We have got to write a thriller set in this building. You and me. And I said, Lincoln, I don't know anything about writing thrillers. I don't, I'm, I'm a nonfiction writer. I took myself very seriously. I was going to be a serious nonfiction writer. And Lincoln said, Doug, listen, I know how to write a thriller. We're going to team up. And so I wrote, uh, we wrote together this book that we called Relic. And uh, it became a bestseller and was made into a movie. And it turned out I really enjoyed writing these thrillers. A Relic is, uh, no, it's not a literary, it's not a great American novel or work of literature. It is about a brain-eating monster trapped in the museum with a bunch of museum goers during a special exhibition. And he's hunting them down and killing them one by one. And I had so much fun killing the administrators and all the bureaucrats <laughs> in the museum that I hated to deal with. <laughs> when the book was published, the director of the museum at the time, his name was Tom Nicholson, I saw him. He said to me, Doug, I read that book of yours. And all I can say is, I'm sorry you don't still work at the museum so I could have the pleasure of firing your ass. That's a horrible <laughs> book. Grace, how could you have written such a book? Oh and when, when the producers of the movie at Paramount Pictures wanted to film in the museum, they came to the new president of the museum, Ellen Futter, and they asked her if they could film in the museum and, gave, and offered a multi-million dollar fee. And she said, absolutely not. That's a terrible book. We hate that book. Children die in that book. How would you think you would ever want to film that book in our museum? Take your million dollars and get out. So the, the, the people at Paramount were very upset. And they went to the Field Museum in Chicago, which is another great natural history museum. And they were only too happy to, <laughs> to film in the Field Museum. So if you look at the, at the um, movie, it takes place in the Field Museum, not the American Museum. And they had to rewrite the script to figure out how the monster got to Chicago instead of New York. I was kind of <laughs> um, But anyway, so I'm, I'm going on a little too long. But anyway, so that's, that's how my time at the museum really changed my life because since then Lincoln and I have written I think something like 30 books together wow. and or 20 28 books together and almost every single one has been a New York Times bestseller it's been now, an incredible run of uh of success and fun Doug you we talked some years ago about some of this and as I remember at first you didn't want to have your name on the book is that right no, I didn't. In fact, that, that's a terrible, that, that was awful what happened because I had a contract with Simon & Schuster 
and my editor was the great Michael Corda. And I was having trouble with that book. It was a nonfiction book, very serious nonfiction book. And so Lincoln and I were surreptitiously writing Relic. And I said to Lincoln, Lincoln said, listen, I'm going to find an agent for us because they didn't want my agent to handle the book. I didn't want anything to do with it. I thought, oh my God, you know, if this book, if my name is associated with this book, there goes my, my Pulitzer Prize. You know, they're going to say, oh, he's just a thriller. So, so Lincoln told his agent that he'd hired not to put my name on the book. Well, the agent thought, the hell with that. Preston's got a name for himself, a little, a wee, a wee name, a little bitty name. So he put my name on the book. And what did he do? But he showed it to Michael Corda, the manuscript. <laughs> so I got a call from Michael Corda. And he said, he's a very dry fellow. He said, Doug, I have an incredible coincidence to report. There's another writer out there, your name, <laughs> circulating a manuscript about a brain-eating monster in a museum. Um, and I just, it's, I thought it was hilarious. I just wanted, wanted you to know that you've got some doppelganger out there with your name. And of course, I didn't know what to say, so I said nothing. And Michael said, it is someone else, isn't it? And I said, Michael, wait a minute, let me explain. He said, no, I don't want to hear an explanation. I want you to listen. I want you to listen on the phone for a second. So I listened and heard this tremendous thump. And then he got back on the phone. He said, do you know what you just heard? I said, no. He said, you just heard your manuscript being thrown into my wastebasket. Now, <laughs> stop this writing this ridiculous book and get back to the book you're supposed to be writing for me. <laughs> so, I was so mad. I called up Lincoln and I yelled at him and I called up the agent and I, I yelled at him and I said, take my name off that book. And I don't even want the money. Keep the damn money. I want nothing more to do with this book. So Lincoln said, okay. And then like three months later, Lincoln called me and said, well, Doug, um, our agent has sold the book. I said, not our agent, your agent. And Lincoln said, well, don't you want to hear how much money he got for it? I said, I don't want to hear how much. I don't care. Keep the money. Wait, how much? He said, $30,000. I said, oh, holy. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on here. All right, put my name back on the manuscript and send me half the money. <laughs> so that's what he did. Um, anyway, I mean, I was so poor. I, I, you know, I was a starving writer. And 15000 half of that money was an absolute fortune to me. So uh, that's how we got started. <laughs> How has your relationship with Lincoln evolved through the years? You've written close to 30 books. How is, how is it now? Well, uh, how's our relationship? Well, we, uh, you know, we are very close. We respect each other, but in many ways, it's like a bad marriage. I'm carping, <laughs> sniping, irritating each other. Um, he rewrites something I've written, and that pisses me off, or I do the same thing. And, and so there's a lot of uh, friction there. But somehow out of this friction arises, we, we both, you know, we both prevent or, or stop each other from the, the worst, our worst habits. And you know what I mean? I mean, the books are tight. They're tightly plotted. They're, I think, because we both reject each other's uh, bad habits and bad writing and all the rest of it. And, and so we, they go through this purification process. And the end result is really 
something I think better than we could do on our own, at least in terms of fiction. I mean, Lincoln has a wonderful sense of fiction, character, plot, you know, and I also bring uh, strengths to this partnership that are not his. And so we, as a result, we really, I think, work well together. I mean, people, so, um, people like our books. You know, in the beginning, the only person who seemed to be buying and reading my books was my mother. So, <laughs> so tell us about Agent Pin, Special Agent Pendergast. Um, you know, how has he evolved, and and you know, does he still surprise you? Well, you know, after that, twenty novels, Pendergast. That was Lincoln and my first fight. So what happened was Lincoln said to me, "Just we plotted the relic." Relic, we, we uh, or the few first few chapters, and then I wrote the first few chapters, and I sent them to Link, and he called me up and he said, "Doug, these are great. I love these chapters in the museum. They're great, except there's one problem." And I said, "What?" And he said, "Well, you got these two cops, an Irish cop, and an Italian cop. You know, they're both like working class, rough on the exterior, hard of gold inside." He said, "Doug, they're the same character." And by this time, I was already really pissed off. So, Doug, what we need to do is fold those two cops together and make one character out of them. And then what we need is a detective, someone that no one's thought of before, some, someone totally original, blah, blah, blah. Well, I was so <laughs> mad at this point that I said very sarcastically, oh, we need a detective like, like an albino from New Orleans. Well, you know, Doug, let's 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 work with that. So, and we started talking, and in 15 minutes, Pendergast was standing there in front of us. Now he's he's not albino; he's just very pale. He looks like a corpse, and he wears a black suit, and he's a man, a gentleman of the old South, uh, who is in New York City as an FBI agent, a fish out of water. And so, anyway, this so we we came up with this character. And honestly, I don't know where he came from. He was like Athena uh, springing fully formed from the head of Zeus. Really. Um, and I don't even remember where his name came from. And in fact, we didn't know his first name until the fourth book of his. Yeah. He'd written. And we realized, you know, we don't know his first name. In fact, we don't know anything about this guy other than we have, we have his personality down. But his backstory is a complete mystery. Who is he? So we, we came up with a name for him. And, and two middle initials, and, and many years later, we figured out what those one of those middle initials was, and now finally we figured out what the second one is. <laughs> Both you and Lincoln Child have also written books on your own. How do you decide whether an idea is a one for a collaboration or for solo? That's a really good question. Um, that that is again was a problem. Um, at a certain point, I said to Lincoln. Um, you know, I, I'd like to write a novel on my own, just to see what it's like. Just, you know, and Lincoln was very upset. And he said, you know, I feel like, God, I shouldn't tell you this. He said, I feel like a wife who's being cheated on. That's what it feels like. God, he would hate me doing this. And I said, Lincoln, I'm not. I'll just, I'll be writing on weekends. He said, yeah, that's like the husband who comes home to his wife and says, well, I'm just going to have my mistress on weekends. I don't like this idea at all. So Lincoln went out without me knowing and started writing his own novel. And then suddenly he'd written this novel 
And I was so mad. I said, God damn it, you're the one who's cheating on me now. You know. <laughs> Did you ask for permission? Yeah, he didn't ask permission or anything. He just presented me with this novel that he'd written. And so I immediately rushed out and wrote my own solo novel. And then we calmed down a little bit. We realized that our solo novels were different from our novels we wrote together, actually. They were kind of different. I mean, mine are much more maybe techno techno-oriented, tech technological, and I'm not sure, you know, scientific links were more, I'm not sure, also scientific in a way, but um, so, so we've, I've written like four or five books on my own, and Lincoln's written four or five novels on his own. I've written two nonfiction books on my own. Um, one was The Monster of Florence, about a serial killer who murdered young lovers in the Tuscan Hills. I used to live in Florence, um, and you know, wrote this book with a Florentine journalist. And then my more recently, I wrote a book called The Lost City of the Monkey God, which is a, a nonfiction book. So I write nonfiction, and I'm, work, I'm gonna work, write another nonfiction book. I haven't quite decided yet. And I also have a writing career with The New Yorker magazine. I've written a number of articles for them over the last 20 years, um, all in nonfiction subjects, mostly archeology. span Let's um, yeah. Let's talk about the monster of Florence. Uh, um, you've um, uh, as a journalist, uh, your research is, has sometimes uh, taken you to some pretty dangerous places, and you wouldn't think Florence would be one of them. But you actually had some some rather serious repercussions while you were trying to do that book. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's a, a story. The story of a, of a nonfiction journalist who fell into his own story and got into a lot of trouble. I got into tremendous trouble. Um, what happened was he moved to Florence and I was gonna write a novel, a thriller set in Florence about the murder of an art historian. And I had to find out how the, what the police did when they found a dead body. And so someone said to me, oh, you've got to talk to Mario Spezzi, who is uh, the does the crime beat for La Nazione, which is the local paper. He knows all about the cops. He knows more about the cops than even the cops do. So I went and had coffee with Mario. He didn't speak English, and my Italian at the time was not very good. I since, since became fluent. But um, anyway, so he started telling me what the cops do when they find a dead body. It was very interesting. And then I asked him, well, what, what are you working on? And he said, well, I've I'm mostly known for the case of the Mostro di Firenze, the monster of Florence. And he said, surely you know about it. And I said, I've never heard of it. And so he started to tell me this story about the serial killer who was so horrific. I mean, he makes Jack the Ripper look like, you know, Mr. Rogers. I mean, this unbelievable story. One of the, the most awful story I have ever heard in my entire life. Uh, regarding the annals of crime. And when I went online, this was back in the year 2000 when the internet was fairly primitive, but I went online and I Googled Monster of Florence in English and got two hits. And they were both minor hits. I realized, my God, this story has never been told in English. There are a million hits in, Span in, uh, in Italian and some in French and some in German because there were French and German victims, but nothing in English. So I said to Mario, let's write a book 
about the monster of Florence. And so that's what happened. But uh, Mario uh, is a very famous journalist, has a very sharp pen and an even sharper tongue. And he got on Italian television on the most popular show in Italian television. It was sort of like America's Most Wanted, um, but really popular in Italy. And he ridiculed the police investigation of the monster. Now the monster killed young lovers in the Tuscan Hills between 1974 and 1985. He killed uh, uh, um, basically 14 people, seven couples, and horrifically so. And I won't go into the details, you'll have to read the book. But he was never caught. And the investigation was continuing even in the year 2000. In fact, the investigation is still open. It is the longest and most expensive criminal investigation in Italian history. And so anyway, so Mario goes on television and he ridicules not only the investigation, but he ridicules the commissioner, the chief inspector of police, who is a Sicilian. And of course, the next thing that happens <laughs> is the police are busting down the door to his, his apartment. They take his computer, they take all our research, our discs, everything. Mario was only able to save our work because he stuffed a floppy disk down into his underwear and they didn't search him. Um, oh my God. And, wow. And, and, but then I was absolutely terrified. I said, Mario, they're going to arrest. And then they charged him with 26 felonies, but they wouldn't tell him what they were. <laughs> I mean, you know, Italy is, the criminal justice system in Italy is very screwed up. So they wouldn't tell him what they were. They were, they were labeled A through Z. 26. <laughs> I was terrified. I said, Mario, they're going to come after me. He said, Doug, don't worry. You're a best-selling author in Italy. You're famous here because my, my novels have been translated into Italian. So I was kind of a minor, you know. He said, don't worry. They're not going to touch you. Well, how wrong he was. <laughs> famous last words. One day I was, this is how the police arrest you in Italy. One day I was walking through the streets of Florence one morning getting my wife an espresso coffee to take back. And my cell phone rang and this voice speaking in extremely officious Italian said, uh, is this Douglas Preston? Miss Dr. Douglas Preston? I said, yes, it is. This is uh, detective so-and-so of, the, of the, the, home, the homicide, special homicide squad, Florentine police. Um, where are you? We are coming to get you now. Where are you? I said, get out of here, bullshit. Oh, excuse my language. Well, that's, that's, um, you're not, who is this? And he said, Mr. Preston, this is not a joke. We are coming to get you. It is obligatorio. You must tell us where you are. If you don't, and we have to find you, that would not be good, Mr. Preston. That would not be good at all. So I said, oh my God, so... I was in a back street. I thought, I, I can't be arrested here. So I said, okay, I'll meet you in the Piazza della Signoria, which is the main Piazza of Florence, in the spot where Savonarola was burned. And he said, I don't know where that is. I'll meet you in front of the statue of the David in the Piazza della Signoria. So, so I mean, this is how things go in Italy. So we met in, the, in front of the statue of David, and I was hauled in for an interrogation um, in Italian, no translator, no lawyer present. And I was accused of heinous crimes. This interrogation went on for hours and hours. 
I was accused of planting evidence, of interfering with an official police investigation. I was even accused of being an accessory to murder. And thank God my Italian was at this point was fluent because there are all these technical terms like an accessory to murder and all this stuff that I understood. And they tape recorded me. They taped my, they played back my cell phone calls with Mario and, you know, demanded to know what we were really talking about. I mean, our phones have been tapped. I swear my, my voice on their, ta- on their wiretap was clearer than on the original cell phone call. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so it was quite terrifying. And then they said that, that if I didn't confess to these crimes, there's no, uh, by the way, Fifth, Fifth Amendment in Italy where you're, you, you know, they said, if you don't confess to these crimes, we're going to charge you with the crime of reticenza, which is reticence, which means you're not telling everything you know. That's a felony, a very serious felony in Italy and all these other crimes. We're going to charge you with these crimes. If you don't confess right here, right now. And I said, I can't confess to crimes that I didn't do. And they said, all right. So this, this judge just took out this huge book and blew the dust off it, I swear to God, opened it up and read out all the charges against me, which were all being taken down by this stenographer. And by the way, there was, the room was full of t- cops who were interrogating me, you know, detectives. These are very high-level detectives, captains and lieutenants. I mean, this was a huge high-level case, okay? I was really screwed. And so anyway, so they said, you're indicted now for these crimes. Indigato. And then uh, the judge said, but we're going to lift the indictments to allow you to leave Italy, but they will be reinstated later. Well, I took that to mean get out of the country. So the next morning I left Italy with my family. And uh, then they came in and they arrested Mario and they charged him with being the monster of Florence. Yes. Wow. And so he was thrown into Capone prison. He was tortured. He was abused. It was the most horrific thing. And the Committee to Protect Journalists came to the rescue. There's an incredible organization. Um, And and Penn uh, International. There was an international uproar about this. And the Italians were so embarrassed by it that he was released three weeks later. But it was terrible, the experience he had in prison. Just terrible. Um, but anyway, when bad things happen to a journalist, you get to write a book about it. And that's the kind of cathartic <laughs> I wrote about this whole story and much more that I wrote The Monster of Florence. Do you ever get back to Italy? Is well, it impossible for you to go back? I was afraid to go back for a long time, but eventually uh, the indictments against me were dropped. I had to spend incredible amounts of money on a lawyer. He did nothing. But anyway, I eventually all the charges were dropped and I was able to go back. I mean, I love wow. I love Italy. It's a beautiful country. The people are wonderful. But it has the criminal justice system in Italy was set up by Mussolini in 1930. It's a fascist system, and it was never changed. And it is totally powerful. If the estate accuses you in Italy, you are screwed. Really, the burden of proof is on you to prove you're innocent. There's no rights of accused of the accused in Italy. And it's a, as a result, 50% of all murder convictions in Italy are reversed on appeal. Wow. 50%. Now in America, it's less than half a percent. 
It just shows you how completely, and those people who were accused and then, you know, and then acquitted had their lives ruined. I mean, one of these people was Amanda Knox, who, by the way, was accused uh, of murder by the same judge who interrogated me, who was a very corrupt individual. And uh, she was framed for murder, just like Mario was framed for murder, and just like they accused me of being an ex accessory to murder. I mean, it's unbelievable. They accuse you of that, and you're going down a rabbit hole that you're lucky to ever escape from. How's Mario now? Well, I'm, I'm very sorry to say he passed away. Oh. He, uh, he, um, he passed away. Uh, he was really hounded into his grave because the, the police, kept, they kept bringing charge after charge against him, and he kept having to go to court uh, and defend himself. He was impoverished. Um, he had to go to court many times. He was constantly under indictments. And every single time it was dismissed immediately by the judge. And yet the police who hated him kept bringing these charges against him. And they literally impoverished him. And I think one of the reasons why he died uh, was because of the stress of what they did to him. Um, he was a, also a very heavy smoker, which contributed mightily to it. But you know, he was a wonderful man. He was a journalist of the old school. You know, he's one of those journalists that always had a cigarette hanging off his lip. Totally fearless, <laughs> totally courageous. He'd go into any situation and he'd ask any question. I mean, we interviewed the man we thought was the monster of Florence. And he asked him, are you the monster of Florence? I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God. And can't repeat his answer because it would definitely be uh, not appropriate for this podcast, but it was one of the most horrifying things I've ever heard. Wow. It scared the wow. hell out of me. Wow. Now, um, let's talk about your, the other book you mentioned, The Lost City of the Monkey God. Um, I, you know, can, you know, you wrote about your your role in the discovery of this lost civilization in, in Honduras. How, how did you get involved in that? And how dangerous was that? <laughs> well, that was, uh, that was a lot more dangerous than I thought it was going to be, actually. Um, and in fact, it's that, again, that kind of has impacted my life permanently. The, uh, it, I was, uh, 25 years ago, I was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, and I was interviewing a scientist named Ron Blum, who was one of the world's experts on remote sensing from space. And I was doing a story for National Geographic about another subject, about a subject. And he happened to let slip, this guy Ron happened to let slip that he was working moonlighting for a private individual looking for a lost city somewhere in the Americas, analyzing satellite imagery and radar imagery from space. And I jumped all over that. I said, wait a minute, hold on. He said, oh my God, I, I shouldn't have said that. I'm not supposed to say anything. I signed a non-disclosure agreement. I said, look, have this guy call me, please. So I got a call from this guy, Steve Elkins, who was a filmmaker. He's not an archaeologist, but he did have an archaeological background, an academic background in archaeology. But he was a filmmaker, and he was looking for La Ciudad Blanca, the white city, sometimes referred to as the lost city of the monkey god, which is a, a mythical, legendary city somewhere in the Mosquitia Mountains of Honduras, in one of the last 
scientifically unexplored places on Earth. I, and Ron Blum had identified in a valley that was unexplored, which was named T1, Target 1, had no name, had identified unnatural features below the rainforest canopy. And this was in 1997. And so I became fascinated in this story. And I became friends with Steve Elkins. And he wanted to mount an expedition into this valley. And it took him until 2012 in order to set up, raise the money, and so forth. And in 2012, he raised a million dollars. And he hired or engaged the National Center for Airborne Laser Mapping at the University of Houston, a very sophisticated operation, which used LIDAR, a light detection and ranging, which is a powerful technology that can see through the jungle canopy and map what's on the ground below. And so Steve Elkins called me up and he said, he's got this whole expedition planned, wanted me to go. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. But I was really doubtful of it. And I thought this would make a great story for the New Yorker magazine, but I'm not going to ask them yet because they're probably not going to find anything. And then I'll look like a fool with the New Yorker. So I didn't, so I didn't, I just went down there. And so they brought this plane down. They spent three days flying over this valley of T1. The images came back, processed at Houston, downloaded into Honduras where we were. And I couldn't believe my eyes when I looked at those images. My God, there was a lost city. I mean, pyramids, plazas, roads, terracing. I mean, it was unbelievable. I, I was absolutely stunned. And um, so that was in 2012. And so then in 2015, uh, Steve again raised the money from a number of different sources and put together a joint Honduran-American archaeological excavation expedition to explore the city on the ground. And it's in this area of jungle that is some of the thickest jungle in the world covering towering mountains. Some of these mountains are a mile high um, in a valley completely ringed by mountains with only one source, one opening to get in there. I mean, it was like a lost world. It literally was like that. The only way into this valley was by helicopter. So we, we had some British uh, ex-SAS officers, jungle warfare specialists who organized this expedition with the Honduran Special Forces and with the, the blessing of the president of the country and the military. And we, uh, we went into this, ex we had this expedition, this nine-day expedition where we explored the city that was completely buried in jungle. It was so, the jungle was so thick that you could stand 10 feet from the pyramid and you couldn't see it. Literally, you could not see it. Um, it was an incredible experience, but it turned out this was a very dangerous area. It was filled with poisonous snakes as fair to lances. We saw every day extremely poisonous snakes. Um, that's a snake that's 600 times more venomous than a rattlesnake. If you are bitten, you are going to lose your life, or uh, if you don't lose your life, you're going to lose the limb that was bitten. <laughs> anyway, and there's stories about that. But the other problem with this valley was that it was a hot zone of an incurable and horrific tropical disease called mucocutaneous leishmaniasis. And two thirds of the expedition came down from this disease, um, including me. Uh, it's a disease like malaria 
except instead of being transmitted by mosquitoes, it's transmitted by sand flies. Uh, the bite of a sand fly injects this single-celled parasite into your body, and it, uh, the effects are absolutely horrific. I definitely do not recommend people listening to this podcast to Google leishmaniasis because you will see horrific things. Um, it causes, it's a flesh rotting disease and it attacks the face. Uh, your nose and your lips fall off. I mean, it's just awful. Um, so we all got this and it's incurable. That's the other lovely thing about the disease. But as a journalist, you know, if you're going to get a disease, you might as well get an interesting one. And this is an interesting <laughs> disease. It's actually <laughs> the oldest disease known on the planet. They found amber, Baltic amber, uh, in which they found a sandfly, which had sucked the blood of a dinosaur. And in that blood, they found leishmania parasites. Wow. Dinosaurs got leishmaniasis. <laughs> Reptiles get it. Many kinds of mammals get it. It's a very... Uh, it's a disease that affects a lot of different species. So, anyway, so so, so how are you? Well, I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, you know, um, I was. We all got free treatment at the National Institutes of Health um, uh, at the 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 part of the NIH that deals with um, infectious diseases. Uh, the director is Anthony Fauci. And I actually interviewed Anthony Fauci for my book, a very mm -hmm. wonderful, humane, uh, and wise man. Um, but they were very interested in this whole situation where all these expedition members had gotten leishmaniasis in a short period of time, and they wanted to study us. So we all became enrolled in a very interesting leishmaniasis study, and they discovered very strange and wonderful things about the parasite we had it's a new species apparently um one that's never been seen before and it's of the worst possible variety thank you very much uh, <laughs> nature um but uh it's they're very interested in studying it so there's they're still working on it at the nih and i just ran into some of the researchers a while ago they're still studying it quite avidly and they're they and one of them said well if a, if you ever have another outbreak Come on back because we want to take another biopsy from you. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate your interest. <laughs> if you would have known you would be dealing with this for the rest of your life, would you, would you have gone to Honduras anyway? You know, I would have. I would have. First of all, it was a great experience. Honduras is, you know, one of the things that my book really emphasizes is that, you know, Honduras is a beautiful country with a wonderfully warm, interesting, and lovely people. And all we read about is murders and drug dealing in Honduras, as if you can reduce an entire people to that kind of negative stereotyping. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book, The Lost City of the Monkey Guide, was to show that, that this is a beautiful, complex country like any other that has a lot to offer the world, and especially the, 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 the patrimony of the world, this new culture that we found, uh, which was not Maya, but was influenced by the Maya, a very rich and vibrant culture uh, about which we know very little. But it's, you know, part of the, you know, the, the people of Central America, of, of Honduras, you know, come from two different traditions. One is Western 
the Western civilization, the Spanish European tradition, and the other is the indigenous tradition. And these two have come together to create a unique culture. And we know all about the Spanish and European part of that history. And we know so little about the indigenous part of that history because at the end of my book, I talk a lot about the terrible pandemics that swept the new world in which 90% probably or more of indigenous people were killed by European diseases. You know, that history was lost. And so mm -hmm. the rediscovery of this culture, the richness of it, the sophistication of it is something that is really important to bring out to the world. So, um, you know, I know Honduras is a very troubled country, but you know, you can't reduce the people to drug dealing and murdering. I mean, that's just absolutely wrong. So I tried in the book to show, I do show uh, another, uh, another side of that really beautiful and complex country. Uh, Doug, I, I mean, we're, we're running out of time, but I want to give you a chance to talk about something else that I know you care about. You're president of the Authors Guild and, and you have done a lot of organizing work among writers, um, authors united to kind of fight back against some of the, the uh, monopolizing uh, influence of Amazon. Um, if readers want to support the authors they love to read and, you know, and, and the new authors they hope to find, uh, what should they do? Well, thank you. Uh, yes, I, I appreciate that question because, you know, I'm president of the Authors Guild. Uh, I mean, literary culture in this country has never been more in danger. Uh, and it, it's partly because people are reading fewer books. But there's still a lot of people who love books, who treasure literary culture out there, who are reading. Um, it's really a larger issue of the devaluation of books and of literary culture by the dot-com companies, by companies like Amazon and Google, by rampant piracy, the stealing of books uh, by everyone, uh, the illegal downloading of books, and just, just the sense that, you know, this whole information wants to be free philosophy. Uh, you know, there, there's no, how are writers supposed to make a living and write books if they can't earn a fair living from it? And that's what's happening right now. In the last 10 years, full-time writers in America have experienced a 42% decline in their income from writing. And the reason for this is companies like Internet Archive or Google, um, Amazon also, uh, that have allowed piracy and the devaluation of creative content and the sort of this whole idea that, that information should be free on the Internet and blah, blah, blah. And uh, without considering that uh, authors need to make a fair living, otherwise they're going to do something else. And the people who are hurt most by this aren't best-selling authors like me, of course. I'm fine. It's the voices from underserved and overlooked communities, people with unpopular ideas, uh, uh, controversial ideas, struggling mid-list and debut authors. These are the authors whose voices are being stifled by what I call the uh, um, you know, censorship of the marketplace. If they're not able to make a living writing books, they're going to stop writing and they're going to do something else. And that's what a lot of them are doing. And so if you want to support writers, buy their books and read their books. That's all you have to do. 
please don't steal their books. <laughs> and I'm sure most of the people listening to this do not steal books, but but just and, and buy new books, you know, if you can afford them. You know, don't don't you know buy used books and stuff. I mean, of course, it's fine to buy a used book, but but if you really want to support that author you love, buy the new book because that's how they get a little tiny you know amount of royalties for it. So great. All right. Well, Doug, unfortunately, on that note, we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, we promised you we, we wouldn't go over the hour we have by one minute here. Um, so we've been talking with author Doug Preston, class of 1978. Uh, this was fun. Thanks, Doug. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the uh, chance to spout off like this. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> thank you, Doug. That was fun. Thank you. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to Sagecast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.